Hello and welcome to Teacher's Cliché, is the podcast hosted by a teacher and a student. My name is Hassan and I am the student. And of course we have the, last time I used the word esteemed, I'm trying to think of a different adjective. Brilliant, the brilliant marvellous, wonderful. <laughs> the brilliant, marvellous, wonderful Mr. Thank Milton. You very much. And as our guest, uh, we have Mr. Ramsey, Head of Art Department at King Edward's School. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, no problem. Uh, thank you for coming. Well, we're going to have a bit of a change of tack this week because with, with Mr. Jones, we were talking quite technical stuff about, about the, the classroom art and telling people things was one of our main themes. But I think, Mr Ramsey, one of the things that I'm particularly interested by is, is how you operate in the classroom, because I don't think you tell people facts so much as, and, and telling them things, this is what sure. happened. But you're somehow, I guess, teaching them skills and creativity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how does... I mean, I will stand up in front of a class and drone on and tell them things that happened in the past. So how does... How on earth does yours work? Which is a big question. How do you teach it's a, art, yeah. Mr. Ramsey? It's a massive question. I mean, coming, coming at it from the creativity um, perspective, yes, I think you can, you can coax creativity. And you can encourage creativity. There needs to be a little bit of a spark, but I suspect that the teacher's job in a subject like art is to find that spark and just push it and really try to ignite it and get it moving. Um, and that can be difficult. It can be easy. It can be rewarding. It can be frustrating. Um, you know, very much uh, a lot of it, I think, depends on the students you're working with and it depends on the environment and it depends on the kind of general... Uh, reception of the students to your subject but it's a it's a it's a curious thing yeah well it's interesting what you say there but you know finding the spark and coaxing inspiration I mean I think every subject teacher is trying to inspire their pupils sure. to make them really enjoy and be enthusiastic about about what what we're doing and, and especially so in art sure um how much how much is involved with actually you teaching them about say the history of art does that come in it does yeah it's something it's something that we either do subtly or we do explicitly but it depends slightly on the age so pretty much any project that you're going to be crafting around about the year seven year eight year nine level will have um artists in it and it will have examples in it that you're drawing on um, because it's always nice to have kind of things that you can explain to students. This is how a different artist maybe went about the same problem or this is how they responded to a specific, um, a specific situation or a stimulus. Um, but that is quite a subtle level because you don't have too much time to kind of probe into the history of art in those lower year levels. But then when you get further up, mm. those um, opportunities just become more... Uh, numerous. So when you're into kind of GCSE and definitely when you're into uh, year 12, year 13 and A-level or IB, then you can really go at it. Yeah. And I find myself increasingly thinking that when you are electing to choose it at a much higher subject, of course you're still contending with the issues of creativity and how to get students to be creative, but you have more scope to introduce art history because yeah. the time is uh, kind of greater for you to explore that, but also their appetite is a little bit bigger for it. And I think they can, they can come to respect art history as its own discipline more and yeah. more and more. Yeah. Yeah. And we do a lot of art history in, in, in the REMS in year eight with sure. the Renaissance, which 
they do seem to enjoy enormously. Yeah. Actually, it's something that, yeah. you know, you look at the ambassadors and spend lesson after lesson of course. all the bits and bobs in it. And yeah. They do find that all quite quite. We quite took, incidentally, thinking, thinking of the ambassadors, we actually took the uh, Year 12 students to the National Gallery the oh. other day. And the ambassadors was one of the paintings we were actually <laughs> looking at. Did they all stand on that side of it? See yeah, yeah, yeah. They stood at the angle to be able <laughs> yeah. to see the perspective coming Excellent. into play. They loved it. Yeah, yeah, they loved it. And I think that that sense of surprise... Um, either when you're in the classroom in REMS in year eight and you're looking at the ambassadors, or if you're in year 12 and you're, you're in the gallery looking at it, that sense of surprise and that sense of enjoyment and excitement doesn't really go away. You know, you can do it at year eight, you can do it at year 12, you can do it when you're 40. You know, um, finding art and looking at art in galleries is always rewarding and exciting. It's, it's a weird thing, isn't it, how you might have seen the same image over and over again in books or on the computer screen, but when you're actually standing in front of the real thing, mm. it, it does it does give you a thrill, doesn't it? It is a remarkable thing Absolutely. to know that that is the actual paint that the person put on the canvas all those years ago. Absolutely, and you gain such an appreciation for its manufacture. You know, I think that when you're looking at artwork digitally or you're looking at artwork in a sketchbook, it will still reveal a lot to you. It will still tell you so much, and there are so many ways you can break it down. But there's no substitute for looking at it in, in real life. And, yeah, you can kind of see the texture of the paint, or you can see the manipulation of the surface, or you can see all of these um, other kind of details and small appreciations that you might not otherwise get. The size, particularly. Like, when yeah. we went to uh, just down the street the Barbara Institute yeah. the size of them is incredible absolutely I've been told the Mona Lisa is quite small yeah quite tiny <laughs> yeah quite and quite hard to see because there's always a bit of a crowd mm. have you been to the Louvre the Mona, to see the Mona Lisa that place yes I have it was it was um, it was slightly I hesitate to say it was slightly disappointing seeing mm. the Mona Lisa <laughs> mainly because you are actually limited by your viewing of it because you've seen it so many times you kind of know mm. so much about it but when you go to see it in person yeah it can actually be kind of limiting and so those things I was talking about about the, the finer details and those really tiny things that you'd see if you're able to get close you actually can't um, but it's almost its own spectacle seeing the people in front of it <laughs> so, so actually in a strange way in a strange way the artwork's not actually the thing that you might get value from it's actually looking at how people interact with it and to see their kind of reverence of this really famous image mm. yes I took a picture of a photo of lots of people taking photos of yeah the <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite jolly really <laughs> yeah yeah so one of the things that I find really really extraordinary is that I, and, and I'm sure that the answer to this is you can teach anybody to draw but but when say you've got a, a, a younger boy, a year seven, and, and that chap says, "I cannot draw." Mm. I mean, where where do you start? Well, it it happens a lot actually. Mm. You know, you do get this um, sensation that uh, a lot of people, either at a young age or an older age, just have this really firm belief that they can or can't do something, mm. and drawing does come up. And I think because drawing is the f you know the fundamental skill within art. It almost preconditions everything else that they do. So they feel that if they cannot draw and they've got it in their head that they can't draw, it almost acts as a barrier to every other kind of mode of production, which is incredible. But the truth of it is, it's like any skill. Mm. It's like any skill. It's like any practical skill. And you can use different analogies and you can use different kind of anecdotes. But often I find myself um, actually leaning back on music when I'm talking about drawing. And what I'll say to them is I'll say, well, you know, do you play an instrument? They might play an instrument, they might not play an instrument. And I'll say to them, well, did you wake up and you were able to play it? 
you know, you, you might have you might have just one day figured out that you had skill at it, but you couldn't play it. You know, you couldn't you couldn't kind of read music. You couldn't kind of technically play a specific chord. And drawing is much the same. It's something that really stems from experience and it stems mm. from practice and it stems from resilience, really. And can you point them in, in the right sort of direction? I, yeah. Because I, I, I just find, funnily enough, I was watching a lovely program on the telly. Alice Roberts, the, yes. uh, the TV historian, was in Egypt and she was sketching the Temple of Karnak. Right. And, and yeah, it was absolutely beautiful. It was really photorealistic and she was just looking and, sure. and putting in lines and it all just worked. And sure. I, I thought, how do you do that? I mean, sure. That well, again, that just I, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, again, I think it is, you know, your hand-eye coordination, like, like music, like sports, you know, it's something that develops with time. And, um, and the ability to draw something in front of you is very different from the ability to draw something as a copy, you know. Mm. Um, and observational drawing, so being able to draw something in front of you is, is, is almost, its own, it's almost its own skill. So sometimes you have people who are quite good at mimicking flat art. They might have a two-dimensional image and then they kind of work on copying that out. And they can be quite successful. But drawing from observation is very, very different because you have to be so aware of space and proportion and dimension. All of these things. Although, yeah. even if you are from memory, some observation obviously comes into it. Like, yeah. for example, I think John Green played this game whenever he walked around an art museum. Has this artist ever seen a baby? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Lots of strange-looking babies. <laughs> so, yeah. obs- even if you're mem- doing it from memory, you have to observe it somewhat. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of both. So, you know, when you're observing, there's a bit of reliance on things that you've seen before and vice versa. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Can I ask a really basic question? It's very teachery question. Oh, I'm very sorry, right. Sam. I mean, we obviously in history have a syllabus that we have yes. to follow, and and you know, it's it's the Normans this week, and it's something else the next week. Sure. Do, do you have something similar in art, or is it is it more less say fair, and you yeah. sort of have a new idea and do what you feel you it's, want to it's do? It's a bit of both, mm. and and this is one of the really glorious things about being an art teacher. So you, if you're following kind of key stages, like any teacher would be at any level you have kind of technical key stages that you've got to cover. And so these technical key stages might be, for example, the introduction of kind of language um, surrounding terminology. You know, so it might be making the students understand tone or understand what line is. And then obviously there's a practical application involved, um, which is kind of breaking down drawing the way that we were discussing previously. But the really good thing about being an art teacher is that the vehicle through which you do that is quite free. So... Even though you have to cover these competencies mm. and you have to cover these skills, how you as a teacher might steer your way through it can be drastically different from another teacher, which is great because it means in some ways we kind of steer our own syllabus. Huh. I think many teachers would be rather jealous of, of yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Speaking as one who. Yeah. Um, I don't think you followed the syllabus much i always follow the syllabus to the letter we, we always the letter. follow the syllabus i remember in shelves <laughs> we had to do the history of the school well yes and then you didn't i did i certainly did we definitely did the history of the school we might have, oh, we might have had some nazis <laughs> might have crept in occasionally huh? 
Excellent. Who knows? I was very naughty with Russia and Ukraine, though, because yeah. when that when that kicked off. Oh, and also you did the uh, presidential oh, yes. election. An election is always good fun. That's also said, true. Or the future will always, always, always become the past. That was your yes. Was but your you, line. you always have to. I think. I think with any subject, really, you always have to have an element of freedom to be able to go off on tangents because yeah. the tangents are often what you actually remember, mm. and and sometimes those kind of slightly quirky roots um, actually still have like a very important resonance, you know, and, and give you kind of skills that you might not realize you're learning. You know, you might not know explicitly, right, I'm learning about how to research a project, mm. but you're still yeah. picking it up. It's still very, very important stuff. Well, I often say, I mean, you mentioned it, Hassan, that sometimes they're more, more memorable and actually you're still doing a history lesson. Yeah. It's, just, it's mm. just not quite exactly the history lesson you should be. And I think, I think kids quite like it when it's something that's not what they're meant to do and they perhaps mm. make, they make that more interesting. And that seems to me that's something that you've got at your disposal, which is, is yeah, very yeah. nice. Is Absolutely, it the yeah. same with art if you draw one thing or if you paint one thing? Is it the same as if you paint something else? Because I remember doing hands in REMS. Mm. It was very different to doing a windmill in... Well, right. not windmill, <laughs> right. doing still life in uh, shells. Yeah, I guess it. I guess it depends what you're trying to learn. I mean, if 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 at a very reductive level you're trying to learn how to draw a hand, you know, versus how to draw a windmill, then of course they'll be different and they'll have different outcomes. And I suppose you're judging it based on different things. But um, but more broadly than that, it kind of depends what skills you're picking up within kind of how you're drawing hands. If it's that you're trying to draw hands and you're only focusing on how to use line, and you're looking at outlines, but you're also looking at the really complex lines that describe. Uh, the creases in the palm or whatever it might be then that's kind of one interpretation and so actually kind of being able to do anything in line translates to being able to do more or less anything else in line um, but really it depends what the depends what the focus might be in that regard hmm. talking I mean, mm. we've spoken quite a lot about about skills again i'm sorry for being very naive but no, no. do you actually have to do you physically demonstrate these skills i mean do you have a sort of yeah. easel that, that you yeah yeah it's a bit of a mix really because mm. i think you know this this might go back to slightly dated kind of educational philosophy mm. but but there is still this kind of belief that um, students learn in different ways. So some mm. are visual, some are audio, you know, and, and that, that's not really a hot topic now within education, but there is an element of that. And so some students respond very, very well if you as the teacher are demonstrating. So you're physically demonstrating and you're either kind of doing it right in front of them or you're using something like a visualizer, you know, which looks at what you're doing and then projects it on the screen. And they can gain an appreciation for the, the kind of the physical aspect of how you're actually manipulating materials and how you're actually using them. Whereas others are kind of, others can be more cerebral. I remember recently um, I were, I've been teaching ceramics. I'm in the ceramics classroom at the moment. And one of my groups, uh, I showed a video on them about the chemistry of ceramics. And it was interesting because I'll talk about that a little bit, but it's never so much of a focus in like year eight because you know you really just want them to kind of handle the clay and get used to the clay really at that level and, and fuse it and learn basic things about it but the material studies aspect and the kind of chemistry and the physics of it maybe they don't need to focus on too much but having said that showing the video was quite fascinating because the students in the group who were naturally more analytical and naturally more kind of scientific in their outlook gained an appreciation that otherwise they might not get. And so that insight for them 
was different from the others and some of the others probably switched off a little bit but ah, it's it's yeah. trying to kind of cover all bases yeah. and to try to make them kind of realize that there's more than one way of understanding something so you can physically demonstrate you can you can have old examples you can have other students work you can have all sorts of ways of doing it but but actually having a few different avenues i think works because it picks up on those different learning styles so how do you think you could apply that to things other than ceramics or you know for like a history syllabus how could you apply looking at things differently or from different lenses mm. Well, it, it's an interesting question because you, know, you refer to kinesthetic and audi auditory and visual. I think you've got an advantage if you've got a visual learner person yes, in your class. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it, 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 it is tricky. It is very, very tricky because I remember when I was still relatively young, we, we had an, um, it must have been a course I went on, and it was about kinesthetic learning and to link factors together. You had, the class came to the front and they all donned tabards that had the factor written on the front of, of them. And then there was lots and lots of string and they had to join the factors together <laughs> that interlinked. Um, so it was very kinesthetic and all these sure. children were sort of moving around like bees in a hive and getting their pieces of string tangled. And I'm not sure how, how beneficial it was or whether you could have just done it on the blackboard. As that it does sound like days. a recipe for injury, though. <laughs> Quite. Um, but but then, then some children do, do um, value kinesthetic learning. So it's something that we always have to keep in the back of our mind that we do all have very, very different learning styles I mean it's interestingly I for being a bit of a technophobe when, when the computer really became a thing in the classroom and you could project things onto the screen that you could take off the interweb well that was an amazing breakthrough for me because you know in history you talk well, I mean you look at oh, you look at art and you look at portraits and, and you look at battlefields and portraits of important people and, and, and places and to actually have and maps and to have maps beamed up on the screen was amazing and I'm not quite sure how we did it before we had that sort of visual quality mm. I mean and, and books were really quite primitive even even you know just recently in the 1990s really very mostly text virtually no pictures or or anything so we did almost everything by just talking to people which must have been quite a challenge in art but I imagine that that was well before your day at a guess. Yeah, I suppose, but it was the it was the model I went through in, of in, in course, my education, of and course. and and I think then there was probably there probably was more of a reliance on demonstrating. Yeah, you know, so it it just made sense because that's kind of the way that you could get the content and the information across. Yeah. Do you think that mm. instead of banding people in like ability sets, mm. you could ban people based on their learning type? Auditory learners, visual learners, oh, that's a, learners. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, instead of having to cover all bases, you could have less. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's fascinating. It's a really, it's a really good question. I mean, I, I would, I would kind of just preface my answer a little bit with, I hate banding people. Like, yeah. I just, I just hate it. Yeah. But one of the reasons, I think, one of the reasons why I feel myself like slightly allergic to it is because I think that in a subject like mine, that would be a disaster. Because then you are reinforcing the idea that you've got some people who are really talented and some people who aren't talented. That just that just seems like a terrible idea. But but in, in terms of answering the question more specifically, you know, could you band people according to learning type? Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, the thing is, to be able to do that, you'd have to have an enormous culture shift. Um, you'd really have to be able to kind of chuck everything on its head. Um, <laughs> you know, all of the kind of conventional metrics 
would kind of go out of the window. But it's a good question. It would be a great question for a research paper, Hassan. <laughs> you know, if you want to follow it through a PhD, there you go. Yeah. Well, I often wonder if teaching, I mean, we're, we're still broadly traditional, you know, we sit down kids at the desk and talk at them, broadly speaking. I just wonder in 50 years whether that will have become a thing of the past or whether that's sure. going to always be how it's, how it's done. Sure. There was something, though, that, that, that was just mentioned about, uh, I suppose, broadly, we were talking about assessment slightly. Mm. Do, do you assess in art as such? Because, obviously, if somebody writes a really bad history, I say we can give them a very poor mark. Sure. But if somebody's produced a piece of art that's, <laughs> that's really so bad, good. I mean, yeah. do you say this is a rubbish piece of drawing? Don't be such a fool, do better next yeah, time. Yeah, it's difficult. I think, I think art teachers are on a bit of a spectrum with this. Mm. So at one end of the spectrum, you have art teachers who will not assess in that conventional way but they'll assess against merit oh so they'll try to kind of they'll try to kind of get out of their head the idea of what the students actually achieved or mm. what they've actually attained and instead they'll base it against where they think the student's own ability lies ah, right. and so if they're trying really hard yeah. they'll reward yeah. that and then at the other end of the spectrum, you have you have people who are the opposite and mm. who just are incredibly critical and harsh. <laughs> you, know, who, you know, if they see something rubbish, they'll come along and say, that's absolute rubbish. And here's how to make it better. I suspect that like most of these things, a balance is kind of the best thing. So you do want to you do want to reward um, merits if a student is struggling or if they're less experienced, you know, and they just they just haven't encountered different processes before. But on the other hand, um, you have to be able to be reasonably objective and say, look, this isn't very good. And and how can we improve yeah, for it? for these reasons. Absolutely. And I guess, I mean, certainly in, in a more academic subject like history, I guess we, you know, we talk about progress and marks going sure. up. So you must see the quality of the artwork improving over, over time. Yeah, we do. We're, we're quite lucky because I think in terms of kind of continuing assessments and kind of, you know, kind of all of that, we, we, we have a really clear trajectory. You know, I'm often saying to other teachers that we always really know where the student is and we can always kind of see where they, we can always kind of see where they're going. Um, maybe not so much at the very beginning of the school career because you just haven't got as much experience, but certainly as you get further along. Um, we've always got a really good idea of what they can do and where they're at um, and how well they are. How it's always a bit of a gold standard, that, isn't it, to know exactly where your pupils are and, and yeah. how they're yeah. progressing. No, it's a, lucky, yeah. it's a lucky thing. Yeah. yeah. Can we just shift to some of the, so the sort of older boys and, sure. and, and moving maybe in, into the world of, of exams and whatnot? Because I get the impression that they are far more independent learners mm. when it reaches... I suppose GCSE and especially IB, I guess. I mean, do, do they take the lead and you're more advisors and yeah. what we said yesterday, coaches? Are you more of a coach rather than yeah. a teller? We're, yeah, we're the kind of coach manager. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that's true. I would say, you know, the, the further along you get, the more independence is given over to you. Um, and there's an inherent danger in that regard that... You know, you've got to stay busy, um, and, and you've and you've got to have good ideas, and you have to you have to kind of be quite persistent. But certainly, you're you're trying to give away a little bit more independence. Um, and broadly speaking, where you have students who are interesting and also interested, they'll do very well because actually, what tends to follow is that when they've got their own project, when they've kind of negotiated with you what they're going to do. Um, it stands to reason that it's something that they like. And that kind of freedom to choose and that kind of freedom to go down routes that they like is, is, is great because 
it, it, it's self-motivating. Yeah, so if they're, if they're working on an idea very much of their own, sure. wh- where is your role? Can Do you suggest I suppose, how they might make their, their work better? And- yeah, so, I mean, it's still, it's still a very involving role. You know, we've got to we've got to make sure that technically they're they're kind of actually doing the right thing, and and that they're able to do what they want to to the best level possible. But in addition to that, we and and this might be slightly boring, but we need to make sure that they're actually doing something which is going to be rewarded, um, you know, and which actually follows the normal path of a project or, well, you know, fulfills the assessment objectives. That, yeah, that, that's exactly what I was about to say. Does yes. the mark scheme stifle creativity? Yes. have they got to show they can do lines well and yeah um the short answer is the short answer is yes it probably does stifle it a little bit um it's hard to have it's hard to have students where they just love doing one thing and they really enjoy it and they can just go in and and you know do it because you have to you do have to be able to um, you do have to be able to cover enough bases that actually you're proving that you're growing and you're proving that you're learning and you're proving you're looking at different artists and different media. So, yeah, short answer, slightly yes. Mm. L- longer answer, not really, because in a way, in a way, most artists, not all, my, not all my artists, but most artists actually work that way anyway. You know, they, they kind of give themselves projects and, and the projects vary enormously in, in kind of their roots and their navigation. Um, so yes and no, yes and no. Of course, in the old and, and probably still nowadays, there's an awful lot of people do get commissioned to, to, to do a piece sure, of art. So, sure. So somebody will go off and have to draw a paint a portrait of a family group or something if they've been. Of course, and that and that requires its own workload. You know, it's not as simple as just rock up and uh, you know do do a quick painting and you're done. Uh, so. I, it's it's not quite connected to teaching, but I'm just curious. Do you do you have a favourite artist or a favourite favourite art movement? Yeah, I I would. It, yeah, I'm not great with favourites, but I think if if I'm kind of cornered enough times and you kind of really really kind of push me, um, I probably go back to Velasquez. Okay. Um, Velasquez is fascinating to me because he's not. He's not visually he's not visually kind of super exciting. I think his style these days looks a bit dark, it looks a bit serious. <laughs> but what he what he did with painting and what he did with artwork was so ahead of its time in terms of in terms of essentially kind of breaking the fourth wall and and trying to kind of make the observer part of the artwork, trying to relate back to the observer. And I think the other thing that he did which was kind of very curious was that even though he was a court painter in the Spanish court and he was very well regarded and he was painting royals and monarchs and traveling around Europe he also kind of painted everyday scenes and he often he often kind of elevated his subjects to the status of you know kind of kings and queens yeah, and and that and that's quite rare that's not an yeah. easy thing to do so so yeah I think Velasquez for me is probably my probably my number one yeah but you see that was very interesting because I, I feel Im- immediately inspired and I must, I must right. go, actually a po- it's not very good to my art on a podcast is it there is no, a slight snag no. there yeah so we encourage listeners to go and look up Velasquez at once yeah so. look at look at Las Meninas and uh, yeah. yeah you'll you'll find out some really good information about it yeah. so one thing I've wondered yeah. is how did you come to the position of being a teacher was did your teacher have anything to do with it yeah definitely yeah yeah I, I, I was really lucky I had I had brilliant art teachers yeah um, who were who were just uh, very hard working and very kind of inspirational teachers I think so I was I was very lucky um, and I think that it was reasonably obvious that 
it was where I felt kind of happiest and most kind of confident and, you know, kind of most at ease uh, within my own school and within my own upbringing. Um, and yeah, I, I, my route after that was a bit, bit strange. I kind of never set out to be a teacher. <laughs> and I remember, I, I know that's true with a lot of teachers. <laughs> yeah. A lot of teachers will say oh, that. Oh, damn, I have to be a teacher. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I remember when I was, when I was teaching, the, uh, or when I was kind of moving into it, there was that kind of uh, big slogan and big push of those who can teach. <laughs> and I remember always thinking, like, oh, I'm, not sure, I'm not convinced about mm. this. And, uh, and a lot of my friends who I went to university with said, you know, you should be a teacher. And I thought, no, you're just saying that, like, you know, because <laughs> you can't think of anything else for me to do. <laughs> And um, yeah, um, but I'd always worked with young people. So one of the things I'd done at university was I, was I was working as a youth worker for a charity. And it just kind of went from there. It just kind of followed. And uh, mm. yeah, but I'm happy. Yeah, very happy. Well, I, I wouldn't. I mean, gosh, I had two or three really outstanding history teachers. And yeah. And that's that. That sort of makes my yeah. life. It's quite, it's quite a power, isn't it? Oh, a very much. Power. Very much. So it's very, very interesting. Um, I notice that time is the fire in which we burn, as per usual. But w we raised a very tricky question with with uh, with Mr. Jones the other day, and right. I think it was you asked the question, Hassan. I did. Do you want to ask it again? Could you remind me what it is? <laughs> <laughs> what makes a good lesson? Of course. Yeah, sir. Yeah. For the first time on this episode. Yeah. What makes a good lesson? Uh, you know, you're, you're looking for something that I think is immediately engaging. You know, it has to be engaging. And I think, I suppose with me, I'm quite lucky because I can lean back on kind of materials and processes that are quite fun, you know. And you don't want to go down the route too much of fun because then you become kind of a bit wacky. But, um, <laughs> but, I, think, but I, think teachers, I, think, I think teachers do well to remember that, you know, you're teaching young people, you're teaching students, and that really at the core of what you're doing, it has to have an element of enjoyment and joy um, and fun no matter what the subject even if it's very very serious I think there's ways that you can kind of tap into that it's um I'm, I'm sure you have your equivalent but for example you know teaching the new deal is is just ghastly because it's right. dozens and dozens of economic laws and it's sure. really it's pretty, pretty heavy dull. Yeah. and there's not an awful lot you can do with that um so yes that that can make a uh, Although, although, if you can make stats and econ economics interesting, then you hey, know well. Perhaps yeah, we need an absolutely. economics teacher next on. Yeah. So, um, would you describe yourself as wacky? Absolutely, yes. Very often. And sometimes you need that because, because especially if it's an afternoon class and it's 4D, they're getting a bit yeah. antsy and it's hot and it's sunny. And if you don't put something different in or a bit off the wall, it, it can get very monotonous, frankly. And easy to forget, you know, I mean, I, I, I remember my, my kind of, some of my greatest teachers were, you know, quirky. Yeah. And, and, the, and the lessons were memorable because they were different. Yeah. We had a biology teacher who demonstrated dogs or something by always leaping up on a table on right. a board. <laughs> they literally said, yeah. of course, everyone was waiting yeah. for that moment to occur. And you haven't uh, forgotten it. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's funny what, what does stick, it's a fact. Well, it's, it's, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming along. And, Thank you for having me. I, I feel I have learnt a huge amount. Well, I hope so. I, uh, me too as well. Yeah, thanks I've been for very excited by it. Um, 
should have come and observed you. Actually, now I'm about to retire. That's a good idea. Hey, come along. Go yeah. and go and do some go and visit. But thank you, Miss Frams. That's been mo- you have succeeded in your inspiring people without well, any I hope shadow so. of a doubt. And I've, um, I've been really grateful to have the opportunity yeah, to do it. Thank you, Hassan. Yeah, it's thank been you really, really interesting. So many thanks. As for credits, which I seem to have forgotten last time, uh, cover art by the coolest person I know, music by the great Rachel Murray, and of course we have Mr. Ramsey, our guest, Mr. Milton, and myself, the hosts. Thank you, Hassan. Yeah, the music's brilliant, by the way. That that's top-notch music. I, I thought that was ace. Well done. So on that note, see you next time on Teachers Clichés. Thank you. Goodbye. You may pack and go and depart, leaving no addresses. <laughs> <laughs>